Joshua 9, reading uh, the entirety of the chapter. And it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, in the hills and in the lowland, and in all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, when they heard about it, that they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and I, they worked craftily and went and and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves. And all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country, now therefore make a covenant with us. Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us, so how can we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? And where do you come from? And so they said to him, From a very far country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who was at Astaroth. Therefore our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions with you for the journey, and go to meet them, and say to them, We are your servants. Now therefore make a covenant with us. This bread of ours we took hot for our provision from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. But now, look, it is dry and moldy. These wineskins which we filled were new, and see, they are torn. These, our garments and our sandals have become old because of the very long journey. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions. but They did not ask counsel of the Lord. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And it happened at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. Then the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chephirah, Beroth, and Kerjath-Jerim. But the children of Israel did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. And all the congregation complained against the rulers. Then all the rulers said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now therefore we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. And the ruler said to them, Let them live, 
but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the rulers had promised them. Then Joshua called for them and he spoke to them saying, Why have you deceived us saying, We are from very far from you when you dwell near us? Now therefore you are cursed and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. So they answered Joshua and said, Because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore we were very much afraid for our lives because of you and have done this thing. And now we are in your hands to do with us as as it seems good and right to do to us. So he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so that they did not kill them. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose even to this day. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but the word of our God shall never pass away. And may the Lord bring his blessing us as we hear it. You know, there's a big difference, I think, in, in, the, relation, uh, in, in the spectrum between Moses and, and Joshua's leadership. Moses, we know, was the one man who had that very dear, intimate, close, relational experience face-to-face with God. And he was able to lead Israel that way. Perhaps it's what added to uh, him being marked out among men as the most humble and the most meek of all men to be before the presence of God in as much as he was. But Joshua's leadership, though he had these experiences of communication with God, Joshua's leadership is a little more different than that of Moses. Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, gave them to Israel that they would have the word of God to lead and govern them. And Joshua had to rely more explicitly on the word of God than what Moses did in that sense uh, of being face to face with God. And, And I say that because God had made clear instructions with Israel on how they were to deal with other nations and what covenants they could and could not enter into with other nations and and how they were to seek guidance from God. And yet you get to verse 14 in relation to Gibeon and what do we read about Joshua knowing God's word as he did and being that leader of Israel at this time. Uh, We read there they took some of Gibeon's provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. And so Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. Contradicting God's word. (laughs) And, And you wonder why this would happen so quickly And I mean quickly. They had just returned to Gilgal from having been renewed in their covenant walk and relationship with God. 
and now they do this before they're engaged in another battle. Do you see how quick and how easy it is to wander from God? Today, the Lord's day, worshiping Him morning and evening, hearing His word, hearing the call of God to be His holy people, hearing as we did this morning that covenant renewal to be engaged in our walk and life with God to to not be living in accordance with a fleshly lust to be a holy people who are putting to death sin and living in the life and, and, and glory of Jesus Christ and you wait and see how quickly it is that we begin that path of compromise tomorrow as we meet and engage with people it's always there, prone to one, prone to leave the God I love. And we wonder, what is it that could compel Joshua? Well, I mentioned this at least. We know one thing that is happening as this chapter opens. It tells us that the Canaanite nations are no longer secure behind their walled cities. They realize that both Jericho and I, walled cities, have collapsed before uh, Israel. They now plan a new strategy. And let's be reminded that the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, they weren't necessarily good neighbors to one another. <laughs> they were nations that warred against one another, that were always looking to expand their territory and increase their prominence and their wealth. And so they naturally had walled cities before Israel came in. Why? Because they fought against each other. <laughs> you only build a wall to keep people out. <laughs> and so they were warring nations. But as they see Israel coming in, these six nations set aside their differences. They come out from their walled cities together as one to face Israel. It's like the enemy of my enemy is now my friend until our mutual enemy is destroyed. And so they do this. However, we have Gibeon in the midst of this. They are part of both the Amorite and Hivite groups, so... Uh, at least that's what I see from Scripture in Second Samuel 21. The Gibeons are referred to as Ammonites and Amorites, sorry, and here they're referred to as Hivites. So take your pick. It's probably a bit of both. But they realize, and out of fear, we see that they are operating out of fear, as verse 24 down to 25 make clear. They recognize, they heard, they know God has promised the land to Israel. The God that brought Israel out of Egypt. They heard of the devastation of Egypt. They heard of the devastation of the two kings on the other side of the Jordan. And now two cities on their side of the Jordan. They realize God is giving Israel this land. They don't want to die. They don't want to be wiped out. And so Gibeon works craftily. That word craftily, uh, it's scheming. It's probably the better word or wily. Uh, think of uh, Ephesians 6, 11, where we are told 
uh, to beware and to the war that we're waging is a war against Satan's schemes. And it, it's that same idea at work here. They're scheming deceitfully. They wanted a peace treaty with Israel. They wanted to live. They knew the very destructive nature of God's purposes. And they also, and, and you know, Satan does this sometimes. They also knew something of the law of Moses. If you were to go to Deuteronomy chapter 20, you would see that God makes provisions for nations that are far off from Israel. You go to Deuteronomy 20, verse 10 to 18. He says, uh, you know, if you're going to fight against a city, first proclaim an offer of peace to it. And if the city will not make peace, but war against you, then besiege it. But it also says you're to do this for cities, to all the cities which are very far from you, which are not of the cities of these nations. God did not want Israel to make peace treaties with the Canaanite nations. He said, for those nations that are far from you, make peace with them. And it seems like these Gibeonites knew something of Moses' law. And they manipulated circumstances to appear sincere and pious. A little bit of flattery thrown in there. It all works together, doesn't it? And with all of that, the walls of caution just seem to break down. I want to say as we look at this art of deception that Joshua makes covenant with these people and then finds out that they have lied to him, the blame doesn't lie with Gibeon. It lies with Joshua. It lies with the rulers of, of Israel. I want you to think on that. Who's at fault here? Be easy to blame the world. Look what they did to us. They deceived us. No, you let yourself be deceived. Very humbling time for Israel. We want to blame the world around us for the troubles that we have. We want to blame the world around us for acting in a godless way. But let me tell you, friends, you can't blame a godless world for being a godless world and conducting themselves in that way. They're doing according to the nature of their heart and the nature of the one whom they serve, even though they don't know they're serving him. No, it all comes back to us and how our conduct goes in accordance with God's word. You know, even 2020 hindsight wasn't the issue. Think about this, both in the Old and New Testament, God is very explicit. Do not make covenant with the ungodly of this world. In Exodus 23, God makes that very explicit. Don't you make any covenant with the people of this land. You turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. You know these verses well. I look at this congregation. These verses in 2 Corinthians 6 are not new to any of you here. 
you get down to verse 14 to 18, and God, in instructing the church, instructing us to be a holy people, what does he command here? He says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness, and what accord has Christ with the law? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever, and what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. God has said to you that I will dwell in you. Uh, Walk among you. I will be your God. You are my people. Don't be unequally yoked to the world. Come out from among them. Be separate. Do not touch what is unclean. And I will receive you. I will be a father to you. And you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. What promises we are to have. And you get down to verse 1 of chapter 7 and he says, So with these promises, beloved... Cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Joshua's issue here in in chapter 9, in this covenant with Gibeon, is no different than Christians who think that they can date and marry unbelievers. And that's a huge problem today. Oh, I, I won't falter in my faith. Or I, I, I know of someone who did this and, and that person came to the Lord. They, they, they were saved from their sins. We have all of these thoughts about how noble we are being in disobedience to God's word. Or businesses. It's not just marriage God is talking about here. Unions with people who have not a godly agenda in their businesses. And I don't mean working for an unbeliever. I'm talking about coming into bonded contracts that could obligate you to disobedience with God. Clubs and societies. You know, it's coming to the floor of our synod, and I understand it's going to pass. This whole issue of whether someone can belong to Freemasonry and be a member of our church. And the the Synod is going to say, no, as I understand it. You've aligned, you've made covenant, you've made oaths and vows that are offensive to God and joined yourself with ungodly, unholy religious activities. Aligning yourself with others for agendas that work against society's immorality. Who do not have the same thought and purpose and understanding. Do not be unequally yoked. Because the world's agenda is never the same as God's agenda. God's kingdom agenda And whatever you do in yoking yourself to someone who is not a believer, it will affect your holiness. It will affect your faith and your life and walk with the Lord. And that's why he says no. 
But Joshua, as we see, first of all, in verses 1 to 15, Joshua makes an oath with these people. He enters into covenant. And, and I believe perhaps one of the reasons why he would make an alliance, a treaty, if you will, which is what it looks to be, with this nation that seems so far away is a good idea. You can almost think and see what's going on in their thoughts. We've got six nations that have joined together and formed an alliance against us. We're out here all on our own. Let's align ourselves with someone who can give us a little bit more strength and encouragement. We might be able to call on them to come and help in our time of need. It's not speculation. When you look at the history of Israel afterwards, that every time they got in trouble with a nation, God was not first in their thoughts to turn to and to say, Lord, help us. It was often Egypt or the Assyrians or the Babylonians. And even when Hezekiah did that, Hezekiah at first turned to God and said, rescue us from the Assyrians. And, and then afterward, when he recovered from his illness, he seemed to make some sort of alliance and friendship with the Babylonians. Why? Because we tend to trust in men and princes and not in God. Joshua's struggle is not a new one. Being unequally yoked, even when in Exodus 23, 31 to 33, was clear, was on Joshua's mind. Even in verse 7, you can see Joshua is thinking. God said, make sure you don't make any covenant with the inhabitants of this land. And then he says, and what does he say in verse 7 to them? Perhaps you dwell amongst us. Suspicion is already there. It's amazing how much we can justify disobedience. I don't believe he was so easily deceived as much as it was an opportunity. Joshua's faith in the Lord was wavering. Can God really help us against all these armies? All these nations. Six against one. Seems like a fair fight, doesn't it? Well, it's always a fair fight if if the Lord is with you. (laughs) And even if you lose, the Lord is with you. Fear, coveting, lust, pride. Those are the things we are often battling and which often motivate wrong actions in our lives. Let me ask you this. Why are so many politicians despised by the electorate? We don't trust them. Why don't we trust them? Because they all make promises that they can't deliver. We know that. But how many people vote for someone who promises the moon? And when they don't deliver, they get angry with that person. I mean, we've lived here long enough to know that if someone is promising you the moon, they're lying. (laughs) We know that. (laughs) You know what it is? is that shame that we fell for it. We get angry because they duped us. But in reality, it was all of those motives that I spoke of, fear and lust and 
coveting and pride, we, we think of what we're going to gain from these things. Even when you sense something is up, as Joshua and the rulers did, something was up, they fell for it. The Hivites, they, they planned it well, they added a bit of flattery, they left out Jericho and I. Why? Because they were pretending to be from afar. We heard what you did to Og and to Sion and, and, and what happened to Egypt. And wow, we, we want to be on your side. God is with you. Wonderful language to hear, isn't it? <laughs> and they fell for it. But what was the sin of Joshua and the rulers in making this oath? His that big sin, an all-encompassing sin, where they presumptuously went forward in their own wisdom. Verses 14 and 15. They were deceived. <laughs> Satan again, eh? Deceived. But they were also disobedient against God's word. They compromised on a very important issue. Instead of asking and finding out very clearly, you're from a far country. What country is it? What God do you serve? You're really walking in the fear of the Lord. How has God revealed himself to you? Easy questions to ask. We don't see that here, do we? A lack of seeking God's guidance. At this stage in the way that God communed and communicated with Joshua, all he had to do was turn around and say, give me five minutes here, I'm going to go and pray to my God. Really, that really is all he had to do. And God would have given him clear instruction. Pastor, can you help me with this decision I have to make to see if I'm following the will of God or just some pride and coveting of my heart. And I'll tell you the first thing I'm going to say to you is, have you read God's word and prayed? God doesn't leave us in a vacuum. In fact, he promises us, trust in the Lord with what? All your heart and he will what? <laughs> Direct your steps. But we make our decisions based on much more than God's word, prayer, and seeking. And what's even worse, and this is what catches Israel and Joshua and the rulers, is they take an oath in the Lord's name in binding themselves to these people. And you see Joshua speaking that out in verse 19 and, and uh, a little further on, the other verse. But verse 19, sorry, verses 18 and 19. We have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. We have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. We cannot touch them now. We use the Lord's name. So help us, God. Think of the third commandment. Times you make promises to people, bearing the name of the Lord when you promise. When you covenant, when you say, I will, I do. They wanted God to bless something that they didn't seek his will concerning and added his name to it. 
I just know this is the will of God for me. Oh, really? How? How have you prayed? What word of God led you into such an important decision? Can you show me those things? And we're often left saying, well, I, I just feel it's right. Aren't we? See how it happens? Making an oath, really easy to do. But making a bad oath in the name of the Lord is sinful. That brings us to verses 16 and 21, where they're challenged now to keep the oath. Some of you might be thinking, well, couldn't Joshua just annul this covenant as God couldn't possibly honor it? That it's contrary to the integrity of God and his people? It's a challenging thought, isn't it? Couldn't I just say, God, I was wrong. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. And go up to someone and say, I know I promised, but... And and ask for forgiveness. And that would just absolve me from this oath. I don't have to fulfill it. (coughs) Now, in some cases, some oaths need to be annulled. Jephthah, his oath to sacrifice... The first thing that came out of his house, and it happened to be his daughter. He should have fall, fell down and just said, Oh God, I cannot add sin to sin in fulfilling this oath. That's the difference. To mean sinning against God further and further. Then, yes, that oath needed to be annulled. Herod's pledge. Why did Herod keep his pledge? Which, that's why I believe that Jephthah actually sacrificed his daughter. The pride of man's heart. I can't be released from this oath. Oh, you brought grief to me. Why would you ask for such a thing? You think God honored the fulfilling of those oaths of Jephthah and Herod? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. God never condones oaths that lead you to sinful, vile transgressions. But those oaths that you make in his name, that when it comes to the fulfilling of them, causes you suffering and loss, personally, are oaths that are to be kept no matter how hard it may seem to keep them. We sang that in Psalm 15, verse 4. Who is that holy, godly man who can dwell in the tent of the Lord and stand in his holy presence? He who swears and keeps what he has vowed even to his hurt. And sometimes that hurt is just the shaming of our pride. Godly integrity obligates keeping oaths even when it causes suffering and loss. You can see this as Christ himself in the garden was pleading with God in that covenant that was made within the Godhead. The Father to the Son, I am giving you an inheritance. Will you now go forth, become one of them, 
and bear their sins unto death in a cursed death on the cross so that they can be delivered from their sins. And in that covenant of redemption from eternity, Christ affirmed, yes, I will. And then in the garden, what's he praying? Oh, God, I didn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say he didn't, but this is greater than I, Esther. If there is any other way for this to be done, let it be. Not my will. Yours be done. We have other instances too. In Matthew 17, some of the rulers come trying to catch Jesus in sin. And they come not to Jesus himself, they come to Peter. And they say to Peter, does your teacher pay the temple tax? And without thinking, and because he doesn't want to deal with any issues or problems with uh, the tax man there, he just simply says, yes, he does. (laughs) And Jesus meets him afterwards and he says to him, Simon, what do you think? From whom do the kings of the earth take customer taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said, from strangers. Jesus said, right, the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them. Go and pay what you have got. Granted, they get a fish that has a coin in its mouth to pay for both Peter and Jesus. Jesus was making the point that you swore to something that wasn't true. It has to be paid. There's the severity eyes of God when his people especially when the name of our Lord is attached to our oaths and our vows and our promises that we fulfill them even when it is to our hurt Joshua knew he was bound to be at peace with the Gibeonites to let them live because two wrongs don't make a right in canceling this oath Because of their deception, they would become slaves. They have a very specific focus on what they were to do as slaves. But Joshua was being held responsible by the Lord to bring integrity to the covenant. To be as Jesus, the one who fulfills what is covenanted and promised. God expected this integrity of his people. So much so... That in 2 Samuel 21, we read that Saul, King Saul, worked out a kind of genocidal activity to get rid of the Gibeonites from the land of Israel. He shed the blood of many Gibeonites in his time as king. He wanted to remove them from the presence of Israel and God under King David in 2 Samuel 21 brought three years of famine against Israel in David's time for what Saul did because Saul broke covenant. Does God hold our vows? Does God remember what we have promised when we have broken those promises we can't remember? 
as he does. There's a real severity here. And God required justice for it in in Saul's uh, in, in sorry in David's time for Saul's actions. And again, the atonement for breaking that covenant was the shedding of blood. You can see where we're going with this. Because in the end, what are we as sinners before God? We are covenant breakers. We are a people created for the glory of God, but in our sin and even in that inherited sin nature from Adam, we have rebelled against God. My dear friends, every time, even you as Christians, when you willfully, willfully, not ignorantly, but willfully, break a commandment of God, you are breaking covenant. You made your vows when you became a member. Do you promise? Do you submit? Do you confess. And we find ourselves breaking those vows because something upsets us or we've changed our minds and we've moved on. It happens. We've got some young people making vows. That's what we're looking at in our membership meeting this coming week. We're serious. We don't realize how much we break covenant with we also don't realize how much the blood of Jesus covers us. The covenant keeper. The one who never disobeyed God. The one who never broke a commandment. The one who kept all things perfectly. And who shed his blood for us as covenant breakers. So that God's covenant with us may still be true. Isn't that amazing? And it's interesting here in verses 22 to 27 to note that it was Israel who gave the greatest pressure to Joshua and the rulers to cancel the oath. They were angry. They complained against the rulers. And Joshua says, we can't. We can't touch them. You just hear the crowd saying, you want us to live with them now? Yes. And you see... How these people, even as they give their response to Joshua about why they acted in deception, they confess they acted in fear of the Lord. Verse 24, we, we clearly were told that the Lord your God commanded Moses to give you all this land. We, we were afraid for our lives. Doesn't their story sound similar to Rahab? Personally, I can't help but think that Joshua has this in mind, that here God is able to bring good out of evil. Here God is able to take the sin of Joshua and the rulers and turn it into good and deliverance for a people who didn't deserve it. It's not again to say that they were justified in sinning against God. But thank God, in spite of us, God works for good in all things. You read about 
Joshua delivering them out of the hand of the children of Israel. So they were not killed. They were delivered from, from death. But they were also given a place to serve God and His temple. Very people who were told they have no place in and around the temple of God are now made woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord, even to this day when this book was written. That here is a nation of people who, through the sin of Joshua, did find grace and got to be part of the temple activities that presented Christ to Israel. In particular, the altar of sacrifice. Isn't that amazing? Now, my wife and I listened this past week to the story. Some of you will know the name Lee Strobel. He tells this one occasion, it's just how God works, where he had the spirit bring to his mind an atheist friend whom he worked with. And he went over and met with that friend. And for a a few hours, tried to bring the gospel to him in clarity and truth, tried to win him over. And this guy just refuted and and refused to believe. And after all that time, Lee Strobel went back and he said, said, I guess it wasn't the Lord's will. I don't know why the Lord even moved me to think on him. Four years later, Some of you, maybe you've heard this story. Four years later, he was was greeted in a church by a friend, by a person who came up to him and said, I just want to thank you for the way the Lord used you to bring me to the Lord, to bring my family, my wife and my son. We're all believers now. You don't probably realize it, but remember that day when you went to speak to that guy in the office You didn't know that I was down cleaning a mess on the floor behind the desks there. I heard you speaking. I listened. At the end of it, I was so convicted. I knew I needed the Lord. And so I started going to church. And I came to faith. My wife came to faith. My son came to faith. The Lord works in mysterious ways. And even here... Again, this is not elevating disobedience. Even here in disobedience, God brings forth his grace to an undeserving people. That's what's amazing. Whether Joshua realized it or not, he delivered the Gibeonites from death and brought them to the place where the grace of Jesus and his cross were set before them. They became a people without excuse. God's grace is amazing. Just as he is able to forgive and cleanse us for our sins against him, so he is able to deliver even our enemies by the Lord Jesus. Hold your vows before God. Know the word of God. Do not be unequally yoked. Trust your way to the Lord. He will direct.